It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. Well, let's continue to find joy in our journey as Pastor Rick continues to bring us this series in Philippians. And today we're looking at part two of this series. And we're in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Turn there, and let's join Rick in his sermon entitled, An Out-of-Body Joy. Here's Rick. At a Sunday morning service at, in a Presbyterian church in Omaha, Nebraska, as the worshipers came in the door that day, each one was handed a helium-filled balloon and told that at some time in the worship service, when you want to express the joy that is in your heart, just release the balloon. Now, you need to understand, we're talking about Presbyterians here. Christ followers that do not have a history of verbal or physical exuberance in worship. So during the worship service, um, at various times, you can see these balloons starting to float towards the ceiling. And when the service was done, over a third of the balloons had not been released. Okay, could it have been just one of those off Sundays where the elements of worship, just as, as much as they tried to, it just didn't come together for everybody? possibly. Or did it have more to do with what was going on at a heart level in those who didn't, couldn't, or wouldn't release their grip on their balloon? (laughs) See, if we're honest, isn't it difficult not to expect that there is a direct connection between how my life is going at any given moment and my sense of joy. Of course, I mean, it's easy to have joy when your health is good, when my desires are mostly fulfilled, when others agree with me, when I'm affirmed, when I'm appreciated, when I have clarity about the direction and the decisions of my life, when I feel more in control and less in chaos, and when I get my way, more than you get yours. But then, where is the supernatural element of biblical joy if it's only found when my life is running well and feels good? In fact, let's take that step, let's take that thought a step further Does joy depend at all upon what is happening to me or what comes to me or what benefits me? Could it be? Could it be that we have substituted the counterfeit experience and emotion of happiness and labeled it as joy? That's why we so desperately need to allow the Apostle Paul to speak into our lives this morning as we continue in our study in the book of Philippians. So you have your Bibles open there if you've not already turned to Philippians chapter 1 as we're going to look in verse 3 to verse 11 this morning. Because as we noted last week as we began this study, that these pages that he penned 
will introduce us to the authentic quality and staying power of joy regardless. Now be prepared, because Paul is not going to give us an analytical dissertation on the subject. Rather, in a very vulnerable and personal way, he's going to open up his heart and allow us to see how he found joy in his journey. But remember, he does not write this letter from underneath a beach umbrella on his, at his condo overlooking the Mediterranean. No, this letter was authored while he was confined. We already mentioned last week that Paul has been in prison now for four years. And his life, even as a follower of Jesus Christ, wasn't easy even before this most recent confinement. Remember, Paul has got a arrest record as long as your arm. He is on the first name basis with every police chief from Jerusalem to Corinth. And his body has been so beat up and bruised by the violence that he has endured, it, has, it probably looks like he's been run over by a couple of 18-wheelers with snow chains on. Yet has Paul turned into a bitter, crotchety, self-absorbed old man? Hardly. Look at what he writes as he begins in Philippians 1, starting at verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Notice, in his prayer, Paul gives us concrete evidence for having a thankful and joyful heart. And how is that possible? Because Paul found how to have an out-of-body joy. It's a joy that does not depend upon what's happening in him or what's happening even right around him. In fact, this joy has nothing to do with him at all. So let's unpack this prayer this morning. From verse 3 down to verse 11. And as we unpack it, we're going to discover something that's counterintuitive, yet it's going to be powerfully helpful for where we live. And that is joy arises as we enter into what God is doing in the lives of others. Now, how many of us grew up going to Sunday school? Probably a lot of us, haven't we? Do you remember the very first time in Sunday school as a little child? I don't know what the age it was for you. I remember it vividly. The first Sunday I was ever taught about the biblical concept of joy. And if you were like me taught that, you probably remember your Sunday school teacher telling you all you have to understand about biblical joy is look at the three letters. It's J-O-Y. Joy comes from Jesus being first, then others, then you. And that's exactly what Paul does from the very start here in his prayer. He wants to stretch out the circle that we use to define joy so that it includes others. He wants us to realize that we can experience a profound sense of joy by engaging in what we see God doing in the lives of other people. Now, if you look at his prayer, you probably know it easily and well that there are two sections to this prayer from verse 3 to verse 11. In verse 3 to verse 8, first is Paul's delight in others, and then second, verse 9 through 11, is his desire for others. So let's look at the first. Notice, 
that joy arises as I pray for others in recollection. In other words, in, in looking back. Paul's joyful and delighted memories of this church center around three things. And these are the same th- three things that can help joy arise in our hearts as we think back about what God's done in those around us. First, look at verse 5. Paul says, be thankful for their involvement in the gospel. We'll start at verse 3 again, just so we kind of get pick up what he's ta- how, how he's approaching this. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. See, here's the looking back. Always in every prayer of mine for you, all, all making my prayer with joy because... Okay, so now he's saying, telling us the three things. First one, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Again, notice, Paul praised God for their partnership. And that word partnership in the, is the Greek word that's often translated in our Bibles as koinonia, meaning fellowship. But you can't think of fellowship in terms of coffee and a donut or of going to a potluck with other people in a church. Though that may be an expression of it, that is not the definition of it. Rather, this word fellowship or koinonia is a very rich word that describes their partner, their participation in something. Their involvement, their deep involvement in something, their, their wholehearted labor in something. Well, what is that something? Well, look at, again, look at your text. It's partnership in the gospel. Well, what's the gospel? Well, literally, it's the good news. Well, good news about what? Good news of what God has done for us in Christ that offers us a brand new life. That's the good news. So that means gone is the sense of of guilt and shame. Gone is the aimlessness. Gone is the self-centered living. And all that and more is now replaced by a forgiveness from God, by a wholeness that we've always wanted to experience in our lives, by a sense of life that my life has purpose, that my life has a sense of destiny about it, and I have a brand new identity. And it all comes because of what God has done for us in Christ. I hate to admit this, but for so many years of my life, I thought the gospel was simply the doorway of salvation And once I took advantage of it, I just moved on to other things. J.D. Greer, pastor back in North Carolina, in one of his books, writes and says, The gospel is not just the diving board off which we jump into the pool of Christianity. It is the pool itself. It is not only the way we begin in Christ, it is the way we grow in Christ. That's why growth in Christ is never going beyond the gospel, but going deeper into the gospel. And that's probably why you've heard some people say, we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Meaning, I need to experience over and over again, not salvation, but to experience in deeper and deeper ways the good things that God has done for me in Jesus Christ that offers me this newness of life. And see, this is what Paul remembers about them. Their partnership in the gospel, and notice verse 5, it is from the first day until now. They didn't go through it and then go on to something else. They've continued to be in partnership 
in the gospel. See, Paul sacrificed so much to bring the gospel into that city. And now these believers, they just didn't sit back and quietly enjoy the privilege of being saved. Sure, they received it, but notice also, then they lived in it, and then also they spread it so that others could enjoy and know how Jesus could change their lives. And Paul says, wow, this just brings me such great joy to see it. And joy for us also can arise as we watch other believers and see them receive and then live in and then spread the gospel. Now Paul moves on to a second area of praise. The first one is not only can we be grateful for their involvement, Paul says also be thankful for their development by God, verse 6. And, so here's another thing that Paul's joyful about as he remembers them. And I am sure of this. He's not guessing, he's not hoping, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Man, what a great promise to understand. We can have the stabilizing assurance of knowing that what God started in us and in others, he will complete. And notice, it is a good work he's doing in our lives. Developing spiritual maturity in our lives. If you go back to the late first part of the first decade of the 2000s, about 2008, 2009, and the economy crashed basically due to the real estate market just imploding, and do you remember driving by at that time or in years right after that construction sites that were just completely abandoned? They ran out of money or because of poor planning, things never were executed and they just walked away. Have you ever wondered if that happens in your own life? Maybe you wonder, well, you know what, I, I just never got the education that some people have been privileged to have. Never went to Bible school, never went to seminary. Yeah, I'm just kind of stuck. Or you look at the weaknesses in your own life and the temptations that you constantly face, and you think, I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to change. <laughs> or... Maybe you feel like, man, I came to Christ so late in life. I am so behind the curve. Um, I'm, I'm grateful. But boy, I wish I'd come to Christ when I was a kid or a teenager or as a young adult. And it's been later. And I'm, I am who I am. Is God ever going to finish that? You want to add to, if you're taking notes, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 21 that I go back to regularly. May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. A good work he's doing and we'll bring it to completion. So what joy, what joy can be ours when through life's, uh, through life's ups and downs, through pain, through pleasure, through the periods of confusion, through the periods of clarity, that what God is doing is a good work as we see that happening in another person's life. 
Now, please understand, though, it's not automatic. As if we can just sit back and say, okay, lay it on me, God. <laughs> Wish it was. Our place is to cooperate with the work of God going on in our hearts. And by the way, we'll deal with this in a couple of weeks in more detail. But this work of God will continue on until Christ comes. In other words, it'll never stop until we see Jesus face to face. So we are not going to reach perfection in this life, but we can grow into ever deeper levels of spiritual maturity. That's where God wants to take us. That's his good work that he's begun and will complete. See, joy arises as we engage in the lives of others and we see their involvement, as we see their development. And third area of praise that will allow joy to rise is in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So third, Paul is thankful for their investment in others' lives. Notice again, verse 7, these believers in this church shared in Paul's struggles. As Paul stood before Caesar defending and confirming the gospel, this church stood with him. As we're going to study our way through the rest of this book over the coming weeks of the summer, we're going to notice how they at times sent money to support him. They sent visitors from their own church to care for his needs. They personally identified themselves with Paul. So Paul's joy was not grounded in what he received from them, though he was he appreciated it. Uh, turn to, the, to chapter 4 for a moment. You'll, you'll see this. Look at chapter 4 and verse 17. He says, quite honestly, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. His joy was based in how they were investing in others. Now, there is a part of that to which we need to see that in ourselves as much as we see it in others. I mean, God has given... Every one of us, people who need us to come and stand with them as they go through deep waters. And that might be an opportunity to share some of our financial resources with them or to show up for a visit at their home or to send somebody else in our place if we can't physically be there or to call them on the phone and just say, hey, can I pray for you? I don't have any answers, but can I pray for you because I care? See, this is the normal outworking of our life in Christ as expressed in community with each other. So yeah, there's a part of this which this applies to me. But this is also something that brings great joy when we see it happening in the lives of others. And again, Paul's words... Look at especially at verse 8. Describe how attached he was because he saw these believers investing themselves and we too can have that same joy as we remember the investment that others are making. Okay, so what's Paul's point here in, in the first part of this prayer? If I want to experience a joy 
that goes beyond a self-centeredness and is supernatural, then it will be seen in my prayers of delight about their involvement, about their development, and about their investment. See, it has nothing to do with me, does it? Or us. It has everything to do about what God is doing in them. Now, as I mentioned, this prayer has got two, two sections. Now, starting in verse 9, Paul moves to the second section of his prayer, and he switches from joy arising out of recollection, looking back, <coughs> to joy arises as I pray for others in anticipation, looking forward. Look at the start of verse 9. He says, and this is my prayer. In other words, this is what he wants to see happen in them yet ahead. And in these final three verses, Paul expresses joyful anticipation of what God might do in their lives. And by the way, this is powerful stuff because we don't tend to pray this way for other people. A lot of other things we tend to pray, which is mostly circumstantial, that will help their happiness. But shouldn't we be praying that they too have joy? Like we want to have joy? So Paul, notice, first of all, tells us that at the very foundation, we ought to be praying that their love might overflow. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. That word abound pictures a river overflowing its banks during a flood. So Paul is talking about a love coming out of us that literally will inundate everything. It rushes and it gushes literally all over the place, soaking everyone and everything. By the way, that word abound, that's the same one in John 10.10 when Jesus says, uh, I've come that they might have life and might have it abundantly. An abundant, overflowing, gushing, rushing, inundating kind of love. You know, someone made the comment that Paul's desire here is that they be so rich in love that they have no room to store it. And by the way, Paul's desire and other New Testament writers' desire for love to be the abounding quality that people in the church are known by is a constant theme. You're taking notes. Just write these verses down. It, it pops up in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7, in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, and 10, in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, and Peter picks it up in 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. In other words, a follower of Jesus Christ can never love too much. It's not possible. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 13 and verse 34, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my my disciples if you love one another. But like the concept of joy, our concept of love has suffered so much by our culture's distortion, hasn't it? So, What does it mean for us as parents to pray for our kids that they're that they would be boys and girls or teenagers of abounding, ever growing love? 
What does it mean to pray that as friends for our friends? What does it mean for us to be praying that as disciples working with someone younger in the faith, wanting to see them grow? What does that mean that we want to see them learn how to love well? Well, look at the character of the love we pray for. We're not done here. Paul isn't done. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Look at the next phrase. With knowledge and all discernment. So here's the character of the love that we pray for. It's a love that has knowledge. In other words, knowledge is a firm grasp of truth. It's a clear understanding of the facts. It's neither blind nor is it in denial. And second, it's a love that has discernment, meaning it clearly sees choices. It has insight. It has perception into what is best. It is wise about what is most appropriate. So what Paul is talking about is not some kind of emotional, gushy love that may be there, may not be, or I'm out of control with it. Rather, he's talking about a love which knows and it thinks. So if the biblical concept of love, which is the word agape, And if that word literally means to do what is best for someone else, then what Paul is basically talking about here is that when I love someone, I will do what is best for them out of a clear grasp of spiritual truth and clear thinking about the choices. Boy, is that a different kind of idea of love than we typically get in our culture, isn't it? By the way, if you, want a, if you want a great demonstration of this, if you just feel like this is an area where you want to grow, like I want to grow in this area, I've got a great book I'd recommend to you. It's called Love Does by Bob Goff. But if you read that book, fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> because love will take action. And it's a great kind of autobiographical sketch of what God has led him to powerfully and courageously do out of love. Now notice how Paul then goes to a second petition. But it's really not a second petition. It's literally an extension of the first. The extension of the first is that he wants their love to abound more and more. And now he kind of starts to focus in and uh, and define it very, very clearly about where it goes. So notice that starting in verse 10, he says, we're also to pray that their abounding love would have an on-target discernment. Again, look at the text, verse 10. Well, start back with verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that. In other words, when you have that kind of an abounding love, something's going to happen. What is it? Verse 10, that you may approve what is excellent. Now, let's understand Paul's use of a few words here. When he says approve, he means to test, to examine, in order to distinguish or discern between things. In other words, if I held in my hands two rocks, and one of them was iron pyrite, and one of them was gold, to approve means that you would test those two uh, individual rocks, and you would be able to discern what is incredibly valuable and what is just a common rock, not worth hardly anything. Approve what? Approve what is excellent. That word literally means that which is superior. 
Okay, now, think about this. Isn't it interesting? Paul does not ask that their love would be able to discern between what is good or bad or right or wrong. That's not what he's asking or praying for. Rather, he's asking that God would give them a discernment between what is good, what is better, and what is best, that which is most excellent, that which is superior. Some of you know that for 20 years, one of the most popular PBS radio station programs is Antique Roadshows, where people bring in their antiques and have an expert look it over to see if it's, any value, if it's valuable or not. And he tests some of these things that are brought in and examines the object to see if it's real or if it's a fake. And in some cases, the testing he performs or the examination he performs says, well, now this is a knockoff. And sometimes it's incredibly valuable. See, that's approving what is excellent. And to be serious about following Jesus Christ in our day is becoming more and more difficult because choosing between good, bad, right, wrong is fairly obvious, but selecting between what is good, what is better, and what is best is a challenge. In fact, I've often been told what is good and what is better is the enemy of what is best. Just to show how Paul uses this line of thinking in another place, hold your finger, we'll be back, but turn back left to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 just for a moment. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 and verse 24. <coughs> Paul uses this as a great example of how to approve that which is excellent. He writes and says, Quoting the Corinthian church, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, he repeats a quote from them, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. See see the penetrating questions that, that this raises? To have an abounding love the question is not, not only will it hurt me or help me, but what will this do to others around me? See, that's a discerning, approving, most excellent kind of love in what we see other, in others and others. But it's also something I would want for myself. It's something I would want for my kids. And that's why we pray that those around us would have this abounding love that would have an on-target discernment. Now back to Philippians 1. And here comes the third extension, or the third part of his prayer in this section, but really it's just an extension of, of what he was praying about a love abounding more and more. And that is, we pray that their abounding love with discernment would result in an integrity that honors God. There's the third thing, starting at the end of verse 10. And so, kind of like, Here's what this abounding love with, with integrity on target discernment will do. And so, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, notice that there are two sides to the integrity that he wants to see. First of all, there's the human side, the last part of verse 10, so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is an integrity 
I have choice that is based on choices that I make. Notice that first word, pure. So be pure. The Greek word Paul is using there describes holding up something to the sunlight to see if it has any spot or defect in it. You know, bad light, you may not be able to see it, but hold it up to the sunlight in that day, and that was the, the best they had to judge something in the light. And so you get the idea of, is it pure or not? Well, hold it up to the light and see. But also blamelessness. That word describes a person who is careful not to trip over an obstacle in their path. So on the human side, we pray that they might make the kind of loving choices to have an integrity that's characterized by purity and blamelessness. But second, you have the divine side of integrity. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That word filled literally means having been filled. In other words, the verb there is expressing an act in the past that reveals itself to continue on into the present and on into the future. So we have been filled with something and continue to be filled with that something. Well, what is that something? Look at the text. Well, God has filled us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So Paul is saying, you guys, I want you to be filled with the reality of that the righteousness that God has, has given to you. And this is not just a theological truth, but it ought to bear fruit, notice verse 11, in their lives that you would be people of a God-given integrity and you would experience that righteousness. And what's the goal of all this? Last phrase, verse 11, to the praise and glory of God. Our lives would bring glory and praise to Him. See, the point of being people of integrity is that God would be honored. But we don't live in that way or want that for ourselves or others, that people would think more highly of us, but that people would think more well of our God and His reputation is lifted up and exalted. as our love abounds more and more. Okay, so let's wrap this up. What's what's Paul doing in these short few verses? He's showing us how it's possible to have an out-of-body joy. Notice, this doesn't have nothing to do with him, does it? It has everything to do as he looks back and remembers things from the lives of the people in this dear church and then what he is joyfully willing to pray about what might yet appear in their lives. So instead of joy being limited to what happens to me or what comes to me or what benefits me, he is stretching out our thinking here to realize that joy arises when we enter into what God is doing in the lives of others. And when we enter into that, then it means we fall on our knees to praise God in joyful recollection for their involvement, their development, and their investments. And while we're down on our knees, we ask God in joyful anticipation to make their love overflow with discernment and in an integrity that honors Him. It's never childish. It's childlike to be reminded that joy is indeed Jesus first, then others, 
before ourselves. Father, it's passages like this that just start doing a work deep inside me. Some of this is uncomfortable, I'll be honest, for me. Because, Father, I confess that I am so often wrapped up in a joy that's me-centered. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul, who not from the comfort of some chase lounge chair by a pool wrote this, but someone who was under conditions I can't even imagine. And not that it just had happened last week, it had been going on for years. And this is the joy he had. Which means, Father, I can believe it's the joy I can have at this out-of-body joy. So, Father, for me, for my brothers and sisters in this room, would you help us to be your people who have joy because of what we see you doing in the lives of others. And therefore, we have a joy to pray that you would continue that work, especially in an abounding love. Father, may that characterize my life. May it characterize all of us in this room so that literally Rancho Baptist Church is known as the church that loves well to the glory and praise of the wonderful name of our redeeming Savior, Jesus Christ, in which we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.